Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Welcome to tax and spend Toryism. This is no longer a party of low taxes and high growth. You know what, Alison Pearson, even when you're in two minds or even five, you can still be mighty persuasive. The BMA felt to me not like a union, but actually like a gentleman's club. My first thought on waking up was I'm really looking forward to co-pilot Halligan explaining this to me. Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So, Boris has made his big move, implementing a £36 billion tax rise over three years to pay for social care and help clear the NHS backlog. National insurance is going up from next April, just as changes to income tax thresholds will increase workers' tax bills. And taxes on dividends are also rising hitting not just fat cat investors, but also the UK's army of small business owners from plumbers to graphic designers. And all this just as our post-COVID economy, or is it really post-COVID co-pilot, struggles to get back into gear. The NHS backlog is huge and set to get worse before it gets better. And social care is expensive. And the current system, under which countless not particularly well-off people exhaust their entire life savings, including the value of their home, to pay for their care, does seem inherently unfair. So for all the carping and moaning, or all the broken manifesto pledges, does Boris Johnson deserve at least a smidgen of credit for going for tax rises, for grasping this social care nettle? Now, you've written a column, Copilot, broadly in support of these measures. But only broadly is Alison Pearson most uncharacteristically in two minds. <laughs> I think I'm in at least five minds on this one, Halligan. <laughs> She's flummoxed. She's she flummoxed. flummoxed. In fact, reading the feedback today, every so often you make the mistake of reading the reader comments and you can feel yourself shriveling, shriveling. Look, it's official, Liam. We no longer have a Conservative government. Welcome to tax and spend Toryism. This is no longer a party of low taxes and high growth. Boris Johnson has gone full labour on us with his health and social care levy, breaking two manifesto promises, but counting on the fact that the pandemic has brought himself enough understanding from the voters so that they'll forgive him. As you said, 1.25% increase in national insurance. This will make you laugh, Liam. I made the mistake of filling in the Telegraph calculator of how oh. much Pearson Towers is going to be paying. Let's put it this way. Pearson on- Towers, the <laughs> East Wing will have to be rented to the masses. <laughs> the ensuite shower room is cancelled, put it that way. Anyway, never mind. We're all for the redistribution of wealth in our household. Just, just the fact it's coming out of ours is going to be a bit hard to bear. Yeah, why am I in at least five minds? Well, on the one hand, I salute Boris. I can remember Liam back as far as 19. 19- 1997, Tony Blair at the dispatch box saying we've absolutely got to do something about social care. It's an absolute disaster. And here we are in 2021. Talk about a can kick down the road. I mean, the can's just a little bit of broken metal now, isn't it? And we saw Gordon Brown came up with a policy, which I think was based on the excellent Andrew Dilnot report. And then that was called the death tax. And Theresa May came up with a plan for people not having to sell their homes, but money being taken out of their homes after they died and then that was called the dementia tax so literally what are we supposed to do at some point someone has to bite the bullet don't they and actually try and do something about this conundrum and I suppose 
The reason I'm for it, even though it's clearly deeply flawed, is because I have personal experience with my grandparents of having to sell their house to cover my grandmother's care. And these were working class people, right? You're talking about a tiny home tiny that your grandparents scrimped and saved mm-hmm. in order to own and the ownership of that home was an enormous event in the history of your family absolutely so I remember it from childhood it had outside toilet where you go out in the night and then you know the spiders would be up the wall I always used to sit on the loo with my legs really high up in case the spiders came running up I can remember Liam when they had an inside bathroom put into this council house and of course my grandfather went down the mine when he was 13 died of pneumoconiosis in his early 70s as so many miners did leaving my grandmother really well set up you know with a with this very immaculate little house and some savings and probably went into the next world the loveliest man you ever met in fact you and he would have got on like a house on fire halligan and um <laughs> lovely lovely and then my grandma Mamgi, Welsh Mamgi, became quite confused and had to go into a home. And in those days, everything was taken from you down to £7,500. So all I can say is I'm very glad my beloved grandfather didn't live to see that monstrosity. And I think it was outrageous that you can pay in all your life. And at, at, at the end of life, really extortionate charges will be made from care homes, which don't even provide particularly good care. And that for you is the clincher, isn't it, Alison? Because these measures, they will from 2023 put a ceiling on the contribution that anyone makes to their social care of 86 grand. So at the moment, the ceiling is limitless. So you can lose your entire life savings in your house. But with that ceiling in, that should stop a lot of people who would otherwise have had to sell their house not have to sell their house, or at least they can downsize and keep some property in the family that they can bequeath to children and grandchildren and so on. And despite the tax rises and despite the political fur flying and despite the Telegraph having a really eye-catching front page as we record, highest taxes since the war, which I thought was a fabulous scoop of analysis by our political team, so chapeau, to them, I might have to rip that off from my column this weekend. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Despite all that, you are with a heavy heart and on balance, very much on balance, backing a move that many of our Planet Normal listeners will think is deeply unconservative. Yes, and I just thought I would. I thought this would make you laugh. Two things: one, I woke up about four a.m. this morning. You're going to love this. And my first thought on waking up was, I'm really looking forward to Copilot Halligan <laughs> explaining this to me. <laughs> Now, can I just say a lot of people have sustained very bad mental health during this pandemic, but if I'm reduced to looking forward to your explanation of the health and social care levy, then God help us. But I think this comment under my column really sums it up. So I'm going to just read this out and then I'm going to ask you to explain it to us. So Edward, responding to my column in the Telegraph, Edward, not Edward, Edward. Alison, you are a big disappointment. You have no knowledge of economics. The tax rises first won't be enough for the monster of social care. It never is. Second, it might even diminish the capacity of social care by tanking the economy and making every citizen poorer. But the worst meaning for Great Britain is that we have no more Conservative Party. So with your economics giant tin hat on, Halligan, just (laughs) just go now. Come on, explain to me, is this a terrible moment to be raising taxes? I think Edouard's got a point because (laughs) the tax burden is going up a lot. It was anyway going to go up next April because of the thresholds changing that Rishi Sinak has already announced, so-called fiscal drag as more and more people get caught in the tax net, thresholds going up faster than wages. And now you've got the kind of sneaky part of this announcement was a tax on dividends that almost no one noticed. And I mentioned it in the introduction to Planet Normal because an awful lot of ordinary men and women set themselves up as companies. We are a nation of entrepreneurs and they're not particularly wealthy and they pay themselves dividends to be more tax efficient. And now it's going to make almost no sense with so-called IR35 changes and this dividend tax hike to be an incorporated company. It's going to be very, very difficult for a lot of ordinary people to manage their tax affairs in the light of this change. And broadly speaking, Johnson, Sunak, J 
Javid. They're meant to be in lockstep on this, though, of course, there are tensions between their respective teams that you and I could talk about for a long time. But they've put in this £86,000 ceiling on contribution that anyone will make for their social care. And there's also, if you like, a £100,000 means test, a floor. The ceiling is there to make sure or to lessen the impacts that you might lose your house. The floor is there to make sure you don't lose everything. And in some senses, it's quite a well-designed system. And Andrew Dilnot, who you mentioned before, he's a very canny, neutral economist. He's not going to rah-rah for the government, but he's broadly in favour of what the government's doing because it's broadly in line with plans that he outlined 10 years ago and every successive prime minister has shied away from. But I also think Edward is right. Not that I like people insulting you, criticising you below <laughs> the line. That's my job. You know I'm a disappointment. Go on. <laughs> Must try harder. <laughs> See me at the bottom of your last <laughs> column. <laughs> my economics knowledge is much improved, Edward, since I've been doing Planet Normal, mate. You know when you're teacher writes see me it's never good is it it's never going to see you if it's a gold star the gold star will be on see me because the comment is just too long to write and I don't actually want to commit it to paper because you're going to get a monstering no but Edward is right in the sense that the vast 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 majority of this tax increase is 36 billion pound tax increase and let's not think that this is a temporary rise right I mean income tax was introduced to pay for the Napoleonic War. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Centuries on, it's still, it's, it's still there. But most of this money is going to go not on social care. There's very little of this money is going to go on social care. Mm. It's going to go on the NHS. And this is what Boris has done politically. We've seen, as we speak, they're mustering in the House of Commons. Almost certainly, this legislation is going to get through pretty easily. But... What he's done is he's aligned NHS spending and social care spending. He says that he's solving social care, or at least he's trying to solve social care, trying to get some kind of credit for that, upsetting some younger people because they think, why shouldn't grannies have to give up their homes and so on when I can't even buy a home? But at the same time, this is really all about more money for the NHS. So it's about a massive tax rise to pay for this NHS backlog, which in part is caused by COVID lockdown. And it's wrapped in the guise of a long-term solution to our social care dilemma, which it most certainly is not. No, I agree, Liam. And I have to say, having written quite a quite an enthusiastic, well done, Boris column, I caught some of his tweets on Twitter last night. Now, I know, I know the Prime Minister doesn't write those tweets, but oh my God, there was so much pro-NHS guff, you know, the best of us, you know, the old trotting out the old, the envy of the world. You thought, come on, you know, our National Health Service is not the envy of the world. Parts of it we know have performed brilliantly during the pandemic. Other parts were not even working at all. I mean, almost all surgeons on 100 grand plus a year were on guard leave. So I think he's very much, Boris very much, the Tories are now the party of the NHS. Now, that's obviously very cunning politically, isn't it? Because that doesn't give Keir Starmer much room to come back at him. What's he going to say? You know, you're supporting the NHS too much. But I'm really bothered, Liam, that with these huge, huge billions and billions of pounds now, whatever it's the 5.5 billion NHS rescue package, Plus, none of it, as you said, seems to be going to social care for two to three years. A, are you going to be able to prize it out of the ravenous maw of, of the NHS? You know, it's like, talk, talk about Scooby Snacks. Come on, let's do a Scooby. Come on, I'm not a performing animal, you know. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that so was we, are that, that- we are now on episode 66, right? You haven't attempted a Scooby since about episode three. And then you lobbied, <laughs> you lobbied behind my back for it to be edited out. That one's staying in. Is Don't remove that one. But according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies, I mean, you know, Sajid Javid is saying, yeah, we could have, you know, 5 million, 7 million on the waiting list. The Institute for Fiscal Studies is saying up to 14 million could be on the NHS. David himself has acknowledged it could be double digits. We're already at five and a half, six million, as you say. Javid has acknowledged 
I mean, look, he's the health secretary now, not the chancellor. He wants money, doesn't he? <laughs> well, he does want money. But what I'm saying to you is, OK, so they wrote off a lot of hospital's debt during the lockdown. I think the first lockdown, they wrote off lots of hospital's debt so that they could dig deep for the COVID patients. Then they gave them not long ago, I think Sunak gave them £7.4 billion. Pounds. I mean, you lose track of these things, Liam, and that was a catch up money. Now there's what there's going to be, what is it, you know, 36 billion or whatever. Absolutely staggering sums. And these do not seem to be allied to any promises of reform or economy. Even Tony Blair insisted that you reform the NHS as you put the money in or before you put the money in. Even Blair, remember that scars on my back speech that he gave to sort of shocks of disconsternation from the Labour faithful where he actually had the audacity to say that the NHS should be there in order to serve patients rather than the interest groups who run it. And neither of us are against the NHS in principle. We're not against free at the point of use. We're massively proud of free at the point of use, but we're the kind of nerds. I'm a long-standing nerd. You're just a sort of trainee nerd, but gaining rapidly. We look at you know, tables of cancer outcomes across health systems across the world, right? And for every pound we spend, the NHS does not perform well. It's no no, no detriment to the men and women who work hard within it. But that's just, you know, when you have a, one employer with over a million people, it's, it's not, it's not going to be very easy to run. But if you're taking whatever, 350, 400 pounds a year from your average working person and you're not going to say to the NHS, we can't put up with this any longer, because basically one of the reasons why there was such chaos at the start of the first lockdown is because 30,000 more elderly patients were stuck in the hospitals than should have been and they should have been in the social care system. And so this is now apparently, Boris says, is going to try and address this, but it's not coming, Liam, with any there's no stick. There's an awful lot of carrot and there's absolutely no stick. Oh, listen, it did make me laugh that Sajid Javid gave an interview, which he's saying that, oh, yes, they were still conservatives. Ha ha. And he said he had a photograph of Margaret Thatcher on the wall of his office. And I thought we could imagine Maggie's eyes swiveling as the conservatives (laughs) basically piss away another 36 billion quid. 36 billion, right? I mean, yeah, billion here, billion there. Soon you're talking serious money. Let's just put that in context. 36 billion is the equivalent to around 6p on all the rates of income tax. Imagine the political fallout if you raise the basic rate of income tax, the top rate of income tax, the upper rate of income tax by six pence. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable. Is that what it is? Yeah. Is that really? Oh yeah. my God. Okay. It's absolutely huge, but it's being done with thresholds and NIC contributions and other whiz bangs here. And there, and it's not just Tony Blair worship going on here. It's not just our current prime minister harking back to the halcyon days of New Labour. The Tories now are harking back to the stealth taxes of of New Labour's chancellor Gordon Brown. This is a very, very look. A lot of the detail isn't even out there yet. People trying to understand what's going on, accountants and so on. People like you and me, it's very difficult to really grasp this, and the detail will only come out when the media caravans moved on. I think a lot of it will be finalised in the budget. We now know there's going to be a budget in October, October the 27th. And that's just one aspect of the political deviousness of all that. Another aspect, of course, is that he's doing this. He's got two or three clear years to the election. Plus, there's been this sword of Damocles, this purported reshuffle, which may or may not happen to keep the troops and the aspiring backbench ministers in check. I mean, the ultimate kind of insult, the ultimate demonstration of party management, right, that he could now do is to say, oh, sorry, guys, no, I never said there's going to be a reshuffle. What are you on about? Uh, (laughs) So this is a way of keeping any ambitious people quiet. I was quite interested, Liam, to hear that around the cabinet table yesterday when they were presented, weren't they? They had about sort of 26 seconds to have a look at the proposals before he took them to the Commons, that it was three people around the cabinet table who made any objections to this fast rise in national insurance. They were Liz Truss, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Lord Frost. I'm increasingly fancying Liz Truss as my girl for Prime Minister, honestly. I think she may be one of the last uh, torchbearers 
of the of the sensible Thatcherite flame. Funny you should say that about Liz Truss, actually, because on my GB News show, On the Money, earlier this week, yeah. I interviewed uh, Graham McDonald, who's the CEO of JCB, no less. Oh, yes. He's a very interesting man, runs a company of 15,000 people, 22 factories across four continents. And he did have a bit of a go at the government, particularly on skills. And he was very, very strong on inflation, saying it's the biggest threat facing the UK economy, something that we've spoken about. But he says, apropos nothing, he thinks that the, the, minister, the cabinet minister doing the best job at the moment is Liz Truss. The way she's got on with the trade deal, she's sort of stayed away from the fray, just done a great job. And she is polling well in the Conservative home tally of who Conservative voters view as their next Leader, maybe maybe Boris is uh, a bit worried about her coming up on the blind side. Privately, if if the Margaret Thatcher photograph on Javid's wall is rolling its eyes, you can bet Liz Truss is rolling hers. Can, can we just can we just talk a bit about something I did mention in passing in the column? You see, I really think that. It's a real shame that all these taxes are having to be raised for this, because, of course, in sensible countries like Australia, France and Germany, they have a a voluntary contributory social care insurance scheme. My nieces live in Australia. As soon as they started work, you know, on on the first week, you get a tiny amount of your pay packet put into this voluntary social care insurance scheme. So you're saving from your old age from the time you're about 20, 21, works absolutely brilliantly, very, very well funded you you wouldn't live in australia and be frightened to grow old lib you wouldn't you wouldn't live in australia and be not trying to manage being 80 odd trying to manage your personal needs and being frightened that they'll come and take your savings away so not asking for any help which is what we have here now i would love us to introduce an insurance scheme like that but unfortunately we live in a country where the health system for complex reasons has become a substitute religion and even the prime minister now, as I said, is doing the envy of the world, you know, these marvellous people, da, da, da. And this prevents sensible, rational discussion about how we should fund our health and our and our elder care. And I think it's a dreadful shame because the shrieks of privatisation go up. But then we're still incredibly upset about when we had stories like the dreadful one last week from Philippa about her husband dying in the home without any pain relief. We know there are 700 excess deaths in the home at the moment every week, as Professor Carl Hennigan was talking to us about last week. And yet, Nobody wants to go there. No politician wants to go there. You wrote about Philippa in your latest column, again, in a very moving way. I think what you've put your finger on there, our inability to debate and discuss how we run the NHS, is a profound failure of both our political and our media class. It's impossible for someone like you or me to write even a sort of very considered piece on, hey, look how they do it in Germany. Hey, look how they do it in France. Hey, look how they do it in Singapore. You know, there are countries around the world that maintain free at the point of use without having, as I've said, a monolithic state-run organisation with over a million people in it that is woefully inefficient. Yeah, We have to get beyond this idea that anybody that questions anything about the status quo of the NHS is against free at the point of use and some kind of, you know, right wing nutter. It's not true. And yet 20, 25 years in the media, 50 years between us, there's been almost no proper debate about how we run the NHS. And even from the conservative side, they don't put forward proper ideas about how we can get a better bang for our buck. I think the public would totally welcome a reasonable debate as long as you say always, we are going to have free universal health care. <laughs> we're just looking at how we provide it. It's such a shame that we're not having that debate and discussion. It leads to ghastly human outcomes, such as the one that you've conveyed about Philippa. And it means everybody gets up in a heap when we discuss any of these complex issues. And quite frankly, I think politicians and journalists should do a lot better here. It's interesting, Liam, that the polls are 
showing that people are willing to, you know, dig into their pockets for better healthcare and social care. I think that's one reason that the that the government has, has taken this big risk and broken these manifesto promises not to raise taxes. But what I would say, ask you, is will big state conservatism actually achieve the results? Or are we going to see those billions, you know, just going down the plug hole today? We're recording on Wednesday. We've already seen various NHS special interest groups saying, oh, it's not enough money. Oh, no, we're never going to get those waiting lists down with, you know, a mere 36 billion. So it is a bottomless pit. And what I would suggest to you is that, yes, people are broadly prepared to make these sacrifices, even though they've had a really rough 16, 18 months. But if in a couple of years, if the social care isn't showing any signs of improvement, if they still can't get uh, to see their GP face to face, if the waiting list for their mum's hip surgery or chemotherapy, if those things are not improved, I think the Conservative government could be facing a really big backlash. You know what, Alison Pearson, Even when you're in two minds, or even five, (laughs) you can still be mighty persuasive. Was Churchill the hero of the Second World War, or a racist imperialist whose actions led to the Bengal famine? Should his statue be protected or pulled down? And can we really judge the figures of the past with the attitudes of the present. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like History Defended, a new series from The Telegraph. In each episode, a leading historian defends a controversial historical figure. I play devil's advocate. There are some times in wartime when incredibly difficult decisions of life and death have to be taken. Winston Churchill, Clive of India, Bomber Harris and Oliver Cromwell. Men whose actions still influence the world we live in today. Today is victory in Europe day. Search History Defended in the same place you're listening to this. Now, Planet Normals often highlighted the trouble ordinary folk have getting to see their GP. And we know that even with COVID restrictions largely lifted... Little more than half of GP consultations are now face-to-face, compared to 80% before the pandemic. We've criticised some GPs, but we've praised many others here on Planet Normal, and lots of GPs get in touch with us, encouraging us to keep up the pressure, making sure that while so-called e-consultations can be useful, they by no means become the default option. One such GP is Renee Hoenderkamp, a doctor with a particularly interesting background who we're delighted to have as our guest on Planet Normal. I think if we just start with lockdown, I've been a little bit perplexed from the very start and frustrated, really, on the behalf of patients about the way that we've approached lockdown. Because for me, locking down an entire country of healthy people seems counterproductive because we shut down the economy, we shut down hospitals, we shut down services. And I started to see very quickly, as quickly as April of last year, people suffering because of that. So I started to see cancer treatments being cancelled. I started to see people that were scheduled to have curative cancer surgeries cancelled. I lost a friend whose chemo was stopped. And That started to really, really frustrate me because I felt that there were other ways that we could do this. We knew straight away at the very beginning from the evidence that was coming out of Italy in particular, what the major risk factors were for dying of COVID. And I felt that we should really look after those people properly, but let the less at risk or not at all at risk. So certainly people under 40 in the main who were healthy get on with running the economy and keeping services going. And that just didn't happen. And not only did it not happen, Liam, it just carried on and on and on. And we were completely stymied in GP land. We couldn't refer people for anything other than cancer. We couldn't get routine things done. We couldn't get ears syringed, which sounds like nothing. But if you're a terminally ill patient who's locked in their home, and the only way you can speak to the outside world is by telephone or Zoom, and you can't hear anything, it's really important. So you're very supportive of the vaccination programme in general. You've been double jabbed. You're 
fully on board with that. But you do have some concerns, don't you, about the government's more recent moves on vaccination? Totally. So, you know, this is a dangerous disease. We know that it kills people and it's killed too many people. And so the vaccine for those people is a no brainer. And I absolutely support it. And we can see that it's working. We can see that whilst cases are high, deaths are low. Obviously, any death is tragic. So it's working. So there's absolutely a place for vaccination for vulnerable people and those who want to have it. But Children are not vulnerable in any way. And I'm talking about healthy children here. I'm not talking about children with underlying serious health conditions. Children are not vulnerable at all to this disease. They don't get sick. They don't end up in hospital very often. In fact, from January to August of this year, not one person under 20 died. Not one. So we know this. My daughter had COVID when I had it. And I wouldn't have even known if I hadn't have taken her temperature. And she had a fever for an hour. And that's what kids do. They just bat it off. So for me, we then look at the vaccine and think to ourselves, certainly as a doctor and a mum, well, is this vaccine worthwhile? Is it going to stop something bad happening to them? And the answer to that is nothing bad really happens to them. And then is it safe? And the answer is, is when you're at risk, of course, the benefits of it outweigh the risk. But when you're not at risk, like children, there are some concerns. And I really have concerns over the myocarditis, which is the heart inflammation, which we are seeing. And there are estimates coming out of Israel that one in 10,000 18 to 24 year olds are getting heart inflammation. Now, we don't know what the long-term consequences of that are, Liam. And the JCVI said exactly that. They said that there are considerations which we really don't know that we must think about when we consider the uncertainties of vaccinating young people. Do you think it's fair to say, Renee, that the government has effectively overruled the JCVI? And if so, why do you think that's happened? So they haven't overruled the JCVI yet, but yes, Liam, I think they're going to. I think that writing was on the All the the signs, though. All the signs are. Absolutely. And actually, I think they made that decision six to eight weeks ago. And I say that because six to eight weeks ago, they started advertising across the country for vaccinators to be working in schools. So they made that decision a long time ago. And I think they've been pushing and pushing the JCVI. So what, the JCVI investigation then is a charade? Well, I think the JCVI have been under incredible pressure and we've seen that because they initially were very clear saying that the benefits did not outweigh the risks then a couple of weeks later for 16 and 17 year olds they changed their mind but produced no evidence and now they've produced this latest date um, recommendation for um, 12 to 15 year olds and they've left the door open for the government to overrule them and that's unheard of this is a panel of the top scientists, virologists in the world who are saying they're not happy to vaccinate 12 to 15-year-olds, but here's a door for you so that you can overrule us. And I've never seen anything like it. And children aged 12 to 15, of course, under so-called Gillick competence, can opt to have the vaccine without their parents' consent. So if a panel of the world's leading scientists are split... Is it up to children to make the decision? I think there are two really important points here. The first one is, so 11 years I've been a doctor. And in that time, I have only ever invoked that law for a 13-year-old once. And the reason I did it is because that child was going to be at harm if I didn't treat them. And that's what Gillick Competence says. It says that you must be able to confidently understand that the child knows what the risks and benefits are, that they are able to use that information to weigh up what you're suggesting, that they can repeat it all back to you, that they can't be convinced to stop their behaviour and they can't be convinced to tell their parents. And that doesn't stand for this vaccine. It doesn't stand because by not vaccinating that child, they are not at more harm than having the vaccine. In fact, quite the contrary. So I have a problem with Gillick and I think it will be challenged if it goes ahead. The second problem I have is, is I do not believe that if they invoke that and start injecting children without their parents' consent, I do not believe they are going to talk to those children about the risks of myocarditis, the numbers. So we have children dying of COVID. One to two children in every million die of COVID, but one in 10,000 will get myocarditis. 
I don't believe that they will actually tell children that. I don't think they will let children know properly what myocarditis is. And I don't think they'll tell them that over the next five years, they might have ongoing heart damage, but we just don't know. We don't know if that will happen. So it's just a risk. You take your pick. Renee, what's going on here? I mean, why is this happening? Why is the government pressing ahead or seems about to press ahead, given, as you say, and as Planet Normal revealed a couple of weeks ago, they've been preparing to vaccinate 12 to 15-year-olds even before the JCVI issued its split ruling. I mean, I really vacillate on this, Liam. And I want to caveat this. Isn't it terrible nowadays that we, when we talk about vaccines, we have to say, oh, by the way, I'm vaccinated, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. And now I'm about to do the same for what I'm about to say. I have spent the 54 years I've been on this planet as the most law-abiding citizen who has supported the government in everything. When my older son tells me about his latest conspiracy theory, I just bat it out of the park and say, don't be ridiculous, they wouldn't do that to us. And I now find myself vacillating between these two ideas to try and explain to myself why they would do this. The first one is just following the money. And there's a lot of money to be made by vaccinating people. And so the more you can vaccinate and the lower you go down the age range, the more people there are. There are 43 million children under 12 in America. That's a lot of vaccines. That's a lot of money. Obviously, there are less here, but there's still a lot of money to be had by vaccinating children. So that's one bit. And I think, is it really that? Would they do this for money? I don't know. The other side of it says to me that it's about digital ID. They want to get digital ID. 12-year-olds and above are actually coming into their own right. They do move around. They do spend money. Perhaps they need them to have a digital ID. And yet you're publicly declaring these concerns that you have. So you must feel very, very strongly that there is something untoward going on. Just tell us a little bit about yourself Renee, because I do think your personal story, if I may say so, is admirable. You showed a great deal of determination to become a GP, didn't you? I did. So I went to a very difficult school in the East End of London and did my O-levels there. And then I went on to Amherst to do my A-levels. And I was always going to medical school and everything was on track. And then I got waylaid really. I really had enough of learning. I started to party and I decided I didn't want to go. I went to see my careers teacher and in those days they really didn't want girls at medical school. I'd had to fight quite hard to do four science A-levels and instead of saying to me go traveling for a year you'll get it out of your system which would have worked to be honest. They said why don't you apply to Mark Spencer's management? It's really hard to get in but we think you will. And that's exactly what I did. And I did get in. And I spent 18 months in Marks and Spencers and I hated every single second of it. So then I didn't know what to do because by that stage I had a mortgage. And I saw an ad in the back of the Evening Standard that did I want to work on a top secret project with Robert Maxwell? And I thought, oh, that sounds fun. So I did. And I got that job. And <laughs> I went to help set up the London Daily News, which lasted a couple of years, as I'm sure you know. And he said, you're like this. I had a meeting with him. And I said, you know, why are you closing this? You said you would give it away free for a year. And he looked at me and he said, listen, my dear, if you knew as much about newspaper publishing as you obviously think you do, you'll be sitting in my chair. Oh, my God. So Charming. <laughs> I thought, OK, I'm not working for you. And I went to work for the Daily Express and I worked my way up through the advertising department there until I was the contracts director. And then I left there and I joined Richard Desmond as the publisher of OK magazine. But then I started to get itchy feet and I wanted to go back to medicine. So I went back to night school and redid my A-levels. I applied to the graduate entry course at Bath and I qualified in 2010. That's an astonishing story, Renee. Crikey. You're doing your A-levels at 35 years old. Uh, I know. That's really inspirational. That is really inspirational. And I think a lot of our listeners, whatever they think of what you're saying, they will doff their cap to you that you've achieved that. And so you became a GP and it strikes me that there you were, you were middle-class respectability in one of the most solid professions and yet what's happened with COVID, it's really got under your skin, hasn't it? What you're seeing happening in your name. Do you know, it, it really, really has. But we can't stop fighting. 
can't just let them do this. They've done so much damage already. And now here we are looking to put what is still an experimental with no medium or term date of vaccination into the arms of children who do not need it. And that's the crucial point. There are people who need it and there are people who don't. Children don't need it. They're our future. And when we have a state that stops protecting our children, because that's what we're here for. We are here to protect our children and see them into the future. And when we have a state that starts actively working against them and stopping protecting them, we are lost. I think we are lost. Renee, let's just talk finally about your fellow GPs. We have, Alison and I, many, many close friends, friends from university, relations who are GPs. We know many GPs have done a fantastic job during lockdown, worked extremely hard as they always do. But we also know if we look at the numbers, that the number of face-to-face GP consultations has remained very low at just over 50%, even since the rules have changed and lockdown restrictions have eased. And the number of face-to-face consultations is way down from, it was 80% before this ghastly COVID pandemic. Now, of course, there's a place for e-medicine, there's a place for telephone consultations. But do you think we're relying now on non-face-to-face consultations too much? And frankly, Renee, why are so many GPs making it so difficult for patients to sit in front of them? I think there are so many answers to that question, Liam. I think, firstly, as you pointed out, it really, really differs practice to practice. But we have to remember that we were told to go to digital consultations. GPs, I think, in the main like seeing people. I like to think they do. I know the ones I know like seeing people. The workload is massive and they are disillusioned. And also a lot of them are really, really scared of COVID still. I have intelligent, feisty colleagues who are not doing any research of their own, to be honest, and are terrified. They're terrified of catching COVID twice. And we know that it really doesn't happen in any big numbers at all. Under 0.01% is what the data says. They're absolutely terrified of bringing COVID into the surgery. And this fear seems to have perpetuated itself to a point where they're terrified to return back to normal. Some have, some haven't. Many are somewhere in between. We have to go back to seeing people in person. But I do think it will be a mix of both because I'll be honest with you, for lots of my younger patients who just want to call me about something very simple, they would much rather not have to take some time off work. They would much rather just slot a phone call in at a fixed time. So for many it works, but I agree there are lots and lots of stories and I have worked in A&E during COVID to help out and I've seen many, many people who come to A&E because A, they think their surgery is shut or their surgery is basically shut or they have been sent to A&E by a GP over the telephone for something that could have been sorted out if they were seen. Some members of the public and many of them have written to Alison and I think that the BMA, the Doctors' Trade Union has got way above its station and is being far too opportunistic and putting its members' interests first and foremost, as opposed to patient interest. Finally, Renee, do you think there's something in that? So I'm not a member of the BMA anymore. I was, Liam, and I left. And I tell you when I left, I left over the junior doctor's strike because I felt that the BMA stopped representing their members' interests at that point and kind of sailed the junior doctors down the river. And at that point, and I've said this publicly before, the BMA felt to me not like a union, but actually like a gentleman's club. And the BMA should be actually seeking more direction for GPs because I don't think there is any direction at the moment into what they should be doing. And they should be representing the fears of GPs if they are there and trying to find solutions to them so that they can then see patients. But they should also, shouldn't they, be thinking about patients' interests too. And there's lots and lots of evidence that the lack of -of face-to-face consultations is leading to Uh, misdiagnoses of life-threatening conditions that will clearly cause harm. 
Yes, but I guess the argument would be that just as the teachers' unions don't seem to think about children very much, the BMA is a doctors' union, so they're probably thinking about their members' interests rather than patients. But as doctors, obviously, we all have a responsibility to care for patients, do no harm. And that's why the vaccines are so powerful to me. You know, I have this do no harm running through my veins, and I guess the BMA should have that too. She's our kind of gal, isn't she, Liam? I think, Renee. I mean, imagine Fantastic. being in your mid-30s. I'm going to reset my A-levels and become a doctor. And she did it in four or five years. Just phenomenal. Just phenomenal drive and determination. Just the age when I'm sort of starting to forget your own name if you're coming into the perimenopause. My God, it's extraordinary. I, I, a couple of things jumped out, not just her dedication and drive, but it was really interesting to hear that some of her colleagues, her GP colleagues, are still scared yeah. of COVID. And that suggests to me that a, a lot of people are not really mastering the data which is coming out. I mean, most GPs are probably in their 40s, 50s, 60s. They're not in a particularly high-risk group. And I think that's really telling. We have heard, Liam, from GPs writing into Planet Normal saying they are pressing in their particular surgeries for face-to-face appointments and they're being seen off either by the dragon at reception or their other partners are not interested. Actually, as I was listening to her, I felt I was hearing some of my own interior monologues being spoken aloud because you know how upset I've been at this idea that they are going to start vaccinating 12 to 15-year-olds. I don't know if it was yesterday, today, tomorrow. We're awaiting a statement from Professor Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Officer, about this. What we do know is that our source, a senior source in the vaccination programme, says they are ready to start vaccinating children on Monday the 13th. So if they're going to make the announcement, it's got to be pretty soon. And just to remind Planet Normal listeners, the JCVI that's the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Infection, declined to recommend vaccinating healthy children aged 12 to 15, saying the margin of benefit based primarily on a health perspective is considered too small to support advice on a universal programme of vaccination of otherwise healthy 12 to 15-year-old children at this time. So the JCVI left it up to Chris Whitty and to the chief medical officers of the other home nations to decide whether broader benefits such as uninterrupted schooling would justify giving millions of kids a vaccine with no long-term safety data, Liam, and which causes a virus, for a virus which causes them no harm. And as far as I'm concerned, this would be an infamous and repugnant moment in the history of public health in this country. Our planet normal sources tell us, don't they, that next Monday could mark the beginning of child vaccinations the announcement hasn't been made as we record it may well have been made by the time this podcast is distributed so we'll see about that and another sort of slightly worrying thing is that the government's denying newspaper reports it's planning an october lockdown maybe a fire break during half term with that time tried and tested political phrase we have no plans for an October yeah. lockdown. Like Michael Heseltine famously said, I have no plans to stand for the Tory leadership. Before <laughs> he sharpened his knife and stuck it in Margaret's back. <laughs> and, and as the father of three kids of school or university age, my heart just sinks at that. I think that will be another example of us failing to understand the difference between the danger of a disease and the incidence of a disease. You know, if cases are going up, that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It means that the country is learning to live with a disease as long as hospitalizations are steady or going down and death rates, of course, are going down. And I so hope my fingers and toes are crossed that we don't have another Lockdown, because I genuinely believe there are far, far too many people in public life, policymakers, the commentariat, ministers who aren't getting just the extent of the chaos and the damage that is caused when you stop kids from going to school, when you have these restrictions put on the country 
enough surely is enough. My concern, Liam, is that this is basically blackmail. There's a kind of like, you know, if you don't let your 13-year-old have the COVID vaccine and cases spike, we may have to shut the schools again. Well, that's not right, because we know that the UK has shut its schools more, kept its schools shut for longer than any other European country except Italy. So it's a political decision to keep the schools shut. There is no need for education to be discontinued. And just to say that I was chatting with George, our source in NHS England this week, regular Planet Normal listeners will know that we can't verify everything George tells us because it's the most recent up-to-date data, but we have absolute high confidence everything George has ever told us is true. And I asked George, Liam, about this rumour of a fire break in mid-October if hospital admissions continued at this rate. And George said an October fire break would not be at all justified. There's been no discernible increase in admissions. We are at what you would call a steady state of inflows and outflows of patients. And it's absolutely fine. It's steady. Even if it doubles, it's well within the margins of being coped with. Now, I think you'll like this, Halligan. Just listen to this. This is from George. If the NHS can't cope with any of that, after all the money we've had thrown at us, then it's a pretty poor reflection on the leadership and it's not a service that's fit for purpose. Maybe they can repurpose all those diversity and inclusion posts. I've just done a quick check on the NHS jobs portal, says George. It shows seven jobs with a responsibility for diversity and inclusion. The combined maximum salary of those posts, you're listening, Halligan? I'm listening is £400,000. And George says, for that same amount of money, those seven hospitals advertising those diversity positions could collectively employ 10 band six senior staff nurses or 13 band five staff nurses. So I think we have every right to be angry about the absurd lack of proportion and mucking about with uh, woke politics that the NHS is doing at the expense of properly funding frontline staff. Now it's time for our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic, sometimes funny, very often heartbreaking messages you send each week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Liam and I absolutely love hearing from you and we learn so much. And as you'll have heard today, they often become points of discussion. Liam, do you want to start? Yeah, a great email from Erica. The government needs to pick up the reins and start guiding the country back to normality, she writes. Stop banging on about the number of COVID infections. Of course there are more. There's more testing in this country than anywhere else. People are going to festivals, football matches, cricket matches and so on. Stop frightening the general public. It's tiresome seeing people so frightened, wearing masks, stepping into the road, braving the traffic rather than walking near you, having these expensive, useless tests. COVID isn't going away. We have to learn to live with it. Get on with our lives. People die every day from heart attacks, strokes, sepsis, cancer, kidney failure, road accidents, the lid goes on. The unions seem to have the upper hand at present. The doctors' unions, never friends of a Tory government, are controlling the surgeries. The teachers' unions, again, no friend of the Conservatives, are controlling the schools. Many of these people running these unions, they're not doctors or teachers. My experience tells me they're usually lazy troublemakers who don't want a proper job. Young people need to be back at school and university, learning new skills, meeting new friends, enjoying life. People need to see their GP face to face. They want to and not staying away, keeping worrying symptoms to themselves until it's too late. I had a lot of faith in the Conservative Party, but at the moment I feel disenchanted as the government seems to be swayed, frightened and bullied by the unions, by the scientists of SAGE and the various advisers who appear not to live in the real world and have protected salaries and pensions. My apologies for rabbiting on, says Erica. But I feel frustrated by this crazy situation. I want my grandchildren to enjoy their time at school and university without the restrictions put upon them by the so-called experts. That's a great email. (laughs) We've got so many co-pilots, so many about the subject of the, the rise in national insurance. A couple of to the point ones here. 
This is from Ewan. So the £86,000 lifetime cap isn't really a cap at all, as it doesn't include food and residential accommodation charges, which can still keep on increasing until the unfortunate resident has been bled dry of all their assets by the local authorities and the care home management. Maybe we should all have a cyanide pill embedded (laughs) in a tooth. (laughs) Sorry to laugh. James Bond style to call an end to this unedifying process while we still have a bit left to pass on. And Warren replies to you in a suggestion with, if it were part of the NHS, there would be a four year wait for your cyanide pill. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's British black comedy right there, isn't it? Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. Here's Tony. I think my wife and I are typical Tory voting middle class people. The handy telegraph calculator tells us we'll pay an extra £172 per month into the NHS coffers. Ouch. OK, we'll tighten our belts, but I have little confidence this cash will make it to the vulnerable. Whether it be a 75k diversity director being hired by NHS trusts or the colossal waste of test and trace, I can now say any further tax increase from this government will be met with fury. At that point, what is the downside to having Starmer and Nandy in charge? There won't be a downside. I'll abstain at the ballot and silently settle for a future of stifling taxation and a failed NHS. Shoot me now, says Tony. (laughs) (laughs) We are getting a lot of those, Liam, from lifelong Conservative voters. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out. This is from Francis. I'm in my 50s and all of my friends of a similar or older age agree that what they fear most is ending up in a care home. They all say they would rather end their lives if they were ever faced with needing residential care. I feel the same and so does my husband. We now expect to live decades longer than our parents and grandparents did. We should urgently reform, streamline the NHS because the expectations on it have grown to an unsustainable and it is grossly inefficient. Paying more tax, in my view, will solve nothing. We should introduce a voluntary insurance social care scheme like Australia and we should urgently amend the right to die laws so people like me who value quality of life over quantity can make that choice without putting their relatives at risk of prosecution if they help us put an end to our misery. I looked after my parents and parents-in-law at home through terminal illnesses. The care they received from the NHS and care teams was at best inadequate. I have no intention of allowing any government to bully me into putting up with what they all suffered. We've really had a tsunami of emails on this, haven't we, Alison? I mean, we get we get so many emails to the Planet Normal Inbox, but just in the last 24 hours since this announcement, it's gone mad. It has gone mad, yeah. This is Richard. This tax rise is to cover a £400 billion cost of a knee-jerk lockdown to protect the elderly. Working people will have a wage reduction of, on average, 30 quid a month, in addition to many pay freezes and pay cuts. Make no mistake, none of this is conservative. It's straight out of the Labour playbook. With more authoritarian lockdowns and tax rises to follow, I'll never be duped into voting Conservative again after being an enthusiastic, lifelong party member. And I imagine many more will feel the same as me, no matter how many Guardian writers are drafted in to try (laughs) to justify Johnson's actions. Bridget takes a bit more of an optimistic view. This breakthrough (laughs) on social care has been long awaited. Thank God there is a prime minister with the courage to carry it out. Millions will appreciate this as it takes the weight of the cruelest penalty of all off their shoulders. The daylight robbery of final years of expensive social care. Let's hope there is a thorough root and branch reform of the whole care system to make it fit for purpose. Well, that's it. Pearson started the podcast confused. (laughs) He still sounds quite confused. (laughs) As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week. It's your turn, Alison. Oh, no, it's your turn, Halligan. And I'm as clear as mud over here. Thank you very much. It's got to be Erica. It's got to be Erica. Yeah. So, Erica, send us your postal address to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put Planet Normal Mug in the subject heading and you will get posted to you a rare as hen's teeth 
rare as rocking horse poo, planet normal mug. Congratulations. The competition's hotting up for these Absolutely. mugs, believe it or not. We get quite a lot of complaints from people saying, why can't I have one? If you enjoy Planet Normal, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Liam and I read them avidly and feel very pleased and excited that, that, that we have actually got listeners. It does really help others to find us if you leave us a review and the Planet Normal family can grow. And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website, you lucky things. Find the article labelled Planet Normal, leave a comment beneath it, and I'll reply to you from 11am to noon. We have some really good conversations going. It is you, our sensible, worldly wise, humorous Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners who make this podcast what it is. We learn so much from you and we do really love being in touch. Hear, hear. Do keep emailing us and as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt and our editor Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.